XV Planis as part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. This much, I'm certain of. It doesn't happen immediately. You'll finish the book, and that will be that. Until a moment will come. Maybe in a month. Maybe in a year. Maybe even in several years. You'll feel sick, or feeling troubled, or deeply in love, or quietly uncertain, or even content for the first time in your life. It won't matter. Out of the blue, beyond any cause you can trace, you'll suddenly realize that things are not how you perceive them to be at all. For some reason, you will no longer be the person you believed you once were. You'll detect slow and subtle shifts going on all around you. More importantly, shifts in you. Worse, you'll realize it's always been shifting. Like a shimmer of sorts. A vast shimmer. Only dark like a room. But you won't understand why or how. You'll have forgotten what granted you this awareness in the first place. You might try then, as I did, to find a sky so full of stars, it will blind you again. Only no sky can blind you now. Even with all that iridescent magic up there, your eye will no longer linger on the light. It will no longer trace constellations. You'll care only about the darkness, and you'll watch it for hours, for days, maybe even for years, trying in vain to believe you're some kind of indispensable, universe-appointed sentinel. As if, just by looking, you could actually keep it all at bay. It will get so bad, you'll be afraid to look away. You'll be afraid to sleep. Then, no matter where you are, in a crowded restaurant, or on some desolate street, or even in the comforts of your own home, You'll watch yourself dismantle every assurance you ever lived by. You'll stand aside as a great complexity intrudes, tearing apart piece by piece all of your carefully conceived denials, whether deliberate or unconscious. And for better or worse, you'll turn, unable to resist. Though try to resist, you still will, fighting with everything you've got not to face the thing that you most dread, what is now, what will be what has always come before. The creature you truly are. The creature we all are. Buried in the nameless black of a name. And then, the nightmares will begin. Mark Z. Danieluski. House of Leaves, 2000. Welcome to XV Planets. Greetings, friends and fiends, and welcome back to XV Planus. Transmitting from the Black Lodge, as always, I am your host, Flood, and as always, I am very happy to be here to dive further into the weird with you. As I said last week, I'm still hard at work on the next investigation series, which can be time-consuming, so I asked my friend and fellow podcaster Tommy Eslin from the Curiosity Hour to come and talk books with me tonight. In particular, the books that scared the hell out of us. 
We're going to be getting to that conversation here in just a moment, but first, a few updates. We will be dark next week due to a few investigations we have lined up, as well as a considerable amount of recording and engineering for not only the main show, but for the Patreon feed as well. Now, speaking of the Patreon, we're going to be doing a new interview series here in the near future, where I will be interviewing people from all walks of life who have had paranormal experiences. So you, yes, you, the one listening to this, if you've ever seen a ghost, UFO, strange beings in the woods, or something of the sort, and you'd like to be featured on the Patreon interview series, drop us a line at xvplanis at gmail.com or connect with us on social media and tell us all about it. If it's interesting enough, we'll bring you on the show. I think that's about it, friends and fiends. We are sincerely looking forward to getting back to the investigation side of this podcast, which is the heart, soul, and purpose of us doing this. But those investigations often cost money and take time. Not only time for the investigation itself, but the research, the recording, the editing, scoring, and yada yada yada. Add that on to the fact that this is not my full-time job. Yet. You get the idea. So I just want to say thank you for your patience, support, and for listening. And we will be back to the first-hand spooky accounts here very, very soon. Okay, I think it's about time to get this conversation rolling, so let's hit it. All right, friends and fiends, at this point I would like to welcome a dear friend of mine and uh, co-host of the Curiosity Hour podcast, which, by the way, is next to all of the spooky stuff, is what keeps me interested and uh, well Tommy basically you keep me company throughout the work days so I, I deeply appreciate that Tommy Granger Eslin I always get that messed up when you use three <laughs> names it always throws me off that's fair Tommy I'm so glad that you decided to hop on and chit chat with me tonight we're going to have a great conversation here but before we get into it I was wondering if you could tell uh, my listeners a little bit about yourself absolutely thanks for having me on the show and uh, thanks for that kind introduction. Uh, so like you said, my name is Tommy Esland. I am um, a former teacher, current podcaster, among other things, father of four, uh, avid reader, and um, just generally curious person. It's kind of pretentious to describe myself that way, but it's true. So let's just be honest. Um, I am, like you said, one of the hosts of the Curiosity Era podcast. It is a weekly or so hour-long interview show where we try to find out what gives our guests' lives meaning. So we start with the question, uh, what gives your life meaning? What's your purpose? What's your bliss? And we just go from there. And it has been like really, truly an honor to be able to hear people such as yourself uh, share their stories with us and their experiences. I, I like to say that we're kind of, um, it's, it's a sacred thing to be able to witness somebody's story and no longer being a religious man. Uh, this is kind of the, the way that I stay connected with other people. And it is a truly beautiful thing to be able to um, experience people sharing their stories and sit in witness of that. Yeah. Well, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that's a great way of putting it. And I don't think calling yourself curious is pretentious at all. Uh, ever since I've known you, you've always been very inquisitive and very interested in um, other people's thoughts and feelings about pretty much anything and everything. And you're, you're such a great conversationalist. Like you will never get bored talking to this man, folks. I got to <laughs> tell you, it's, it's always a blast. Uh, but yes, that's right. If you, uh, if you head on over to the curiosity, uh, hour podcast, not only will you get some phenomenal guests, by the way, the Christopher Moore one, huge Christopher Moore fan. That was a yep. fantastic, fantastic yep. episode. 
And you can also hear yours truly on it. I uh, popped in what, almost about a year ago, right? Yeah, just in time for spooky season. And now I have you on mine for this spooky season. Absolutely, yeah. Which is the reason we are here tonight, because it's time to start getting in the mood for Halloween. Fall's here. I got my pumpkins purchased. Uh, the cobwebs still have to go up in the living room, um, but... As you can see, the studio is already decked out like it's straight out of Twin Peaks, so um, <laughs> I am prepared for this. But one of the reasons I reached out to you is uh, I'm still kind of, you know, elbow deep in the middle of the research for our next investigation series, and I wanted to take a, a little break just to do something a little bit different during that um, lapse period. And, you know, as my listeners know, we have the Green Mushroom uh, crossover that just happened, and now I get to have you on here for... Something that we just kind of randomly started talking about a few weeks ago, the books that scare the hell out of us. <laughs> and um, just to plant a little seed there, there is one in particular that got us talking about it, and we're going to save that one for the very, very end. But uh, since we started going back and forth on this, we kind of picked a few selections out of our library. So, my friend, you are the guest, so if you're up for it, why don't you hit it off? I would be honored to. So the first book that I want to bring to you and to your listeners is a book that I read, uh, believe it or not, in fourth grade. Um, it is a kid's book, but I reread it a year ago and it holds up incredibly, incredibly well. It's a kid's book from like the 70s and 80s, though. So that like that's a different kind of kid's book than I think that we get today. Um, you know how like PG was different in the 80s than PG is now? Same kind of thing. So this book is called Nights in Ghostland by Carol Beach York. And I read this book, like I said, in fourth grade. My sister um, was dancing with the Joffrey Ballet in Washington, D.C. And so we were flying from Cedar Rapids, Iowa to D.C. And my parents got me this book. And I remember very clearly sitting on the plane reading this book as we're flying and like the story unfolds and I kind of had to look around and make sure that like the plane was still there, make sure my family was still there because I didn't know that a book could do this. I didn't know that a kid's book could do this. Basically the story is this um, like fifth or sixth grade, I mean, it's been a year since I read it, this kid lives in this town that's incredibly haunted, like incredibly haunted. There are haunted houses, there are haunted streets, there are haunted parks, it, like there are just numerous haunted sections of town. And there are towns that are so haunted that nobody goes to them. Like there's a, a stretch of woods that nobody goes into it. And everybody knows the the urban legends, but like they're real. These, these things are actually happening. The kids that are going through their, their lives walk by the haunted house and they hear the baby crying. Or they look out their window and they see the man limping down the street carrying the bag. Um, and I, I'm getting goosebumps talking about it because I'm about to read it again in a, in a week or two. Um, it is absolutely... It just it is the best writing of a scary book that I experienced at that point. And to be able to revisit it at 43 years old last year and to see that the story holds up, the writing is as good, it is as evocative and as descriptive as I remembered it being. 
I was just blown away in fourth grade and I was blown away last year and I loved it. You were really singing its high praises uh, just a couple nights ago when we, we had the uh, like the precursor call to the show. And uh, I got to tell you, after you were describing it to me, I immediately ordered it. So it should be showing up on my doorstep like here in the next couple of days. Um, so thank you for adding that one to my collection. I'm looking forward to reading it. I can't wait to hear what you think. Well, uh, what was the author's name again? Carol Beach York. And I believe it's B-E-E-C-H. Is is she a genre writer or is it uh, – have you looked into any of their, their other works? I did a lot of research into her a year ago because I, I'm kind of blown away that you were able to order it because I spent the last five years trying to find a copy and I could not. And a friend finally like did some digging and was able to find it. But I could not find it on any of the used bookstores that I normally go to. Couldn't find it on Amazon. Couldn't find it at the bookshop. I could not find it anywhere. Um, but yes, I believe um, – she did specialize in kind of, among other things, the scarier books for kids. But I believe that was the only one of hers that I read. Okay. You actually made a very, very good point there regarding um, how age-appropriate material has kind of shifted over the last, like, 30 years. It's very, <laughs> very different. Because I remember the stuff that I used to get at the book fair when I was a kid. And I was still a horror nut even at eight years old. Yep. Flipping through all of the stuff when the book fair came around. I got the stack of scary stories to tell in the dark. I got them all. Youth horror back in the day was way more visceral and intense than what you find now. Um, I'm actually kind of shocked that a lot of, like, going back and reading some of it, it's kind of shocking that they ended up on some of these kids' bookshelves. It might also say a lot about me. To, <laughs> <laughs> Might explain why I spend my weekends chasing ghosts and UFOs. You know? <laughs> so That's I'm great. curious, what is your first book? Okay, so the the first one that I wanted to bring in, and this is great because aside from the uh, you know the grand finale that we're going to dig into, I brought one piece of fiction and one piece of nonfiction with me tonight. Um, Love that. But, but before we go into the nonfiction, we'll stick with the fiction. And I want to explain how I discovered this author first. I want to say about 10, 10 or 11 years ago, I stumbled across this Canadian horror film called Pontypool. You know it? I do. Do you really? I mean, I have read about it. I have not seen it. I have not read it, but I, I know about it. Yeah. Okay. It is the most innovative take on the whole zombie genre that I've ever seen in my life. Like the way that 28 days later kind of shifted the gears for the whole genre back in the uh, early two thousands. This has done it again in a completely unexpected way. And, it, you know, I come to find out doing my research into the film. I come to find out that it's actually based on a book. And more than that, I come to find out that the author of the book actually wrote the screenplay for the film. And so I started really digging into this guy, and I found out his name was Tony Burgess. And, you know, the first thing that comes to mind for me is Anthony Burgess. Are we talking the guy, the guy who did Clockwork Orange? No, 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 no. Different Burgess altogether. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but this guy is a brilliant writer, and I'm not uh, – he's so unique in the way that he balances horror and humor without sacrificing either one. Like, it doesn't go – completely slapstick, goofy, funny. 
And it definitely does go hard-hitting horror, but even its approach to it, or his approach to the, the horror genre in general, never seen anything like it. I, I don't know, it's, it's, there's something Sam, Sam Raimi-ish about him, but with heavy social commentary and a lot more intelligence behind him. Is this the one where it's like a, a news station and they're just broadcasting? Yep. Okay. Okay. I I am so excited that you brought this to my attention again because I was on TikTok like two or three months ago and there was somebody doing a countdown of the top 10 scariest movies that you would love, but you haven't seen it. And the number one pick was Pontypool. And I was like, I've never heard of this. So I looked up the trailer and it looks... It's interesting that you like the horror comedy. It had a Shaun of the Dead feel to the the trailer a little bit, but it absolutely also felt like Sam Raimi, um, the like the um, evil Ar- army of darkness. It had a feel like that in the like the approach, the way that it, just the visuals. Yeah, right. So. When you see the whole movie, you're going to rethink that um, because, like the 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 visual nature of the film is far more subtle. But anyway, like back to Tony Burgess and and the source material. This film Pontypool was based off of Tony Burgess's book Pontypool Changes Everything. That's the name of it, and it's not necessarily. I mean, it's it's pretty short. It's not like a huge monstrous book. But it's told in a series of stories as opposed to one whole novel that's focused on a group of people. So this uh, terrible outbreak begins, and the book is split into these segments where all of these different people throughout Canada are experiencing this massive event happen at the same time, and nobody experiences it differently. So it's, it's really interesting to see everybody's different points of view. And so there are chapters in this that are absolutely hilarious including one the one that um inspired the characters that you see in the film Pontypool uh Stephen McCaddy plays Grant Mazzy in the film and he is I love that guy so much he's just <laughs> so good uh but the character of Mazzy in the book is very very different so he took a lot of liberties with his own work so I was really excited when I finally got my hands onto this uh onto this book and I was shocked when I started reading it now, first and foremost, the, the thing that stands out to me the most is that this is not the whole living dead concept of the, the zombie genre. It's not like people get bit and they come back to life. There is a new kind of virus, and it infects language. It, it works its way into your brain, and it starts to rewire it, and it starts to try to replace words with other words. And it short circuits your brain to the point that you get stuck on a loop. So you look at a table and you say, table, no, that's not a table. It's a, that's, that's a pra, 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 pra. And then they just get stuck in this loop. And by Tony Burgess's description is the only relief that these victims can seem to find is to try to chew their way through the mouth of another person. My jaw literally just dropped. <laughs> <laughs> I kind of wish I was recording video on this. But, um, but it was so shocking, but it was also so oddball and just yeah. totally crazy. And, and he, he took the whole genre to complete new levels. And that's not his only book kind of touching on, on the zombie problem. 
I'll, I'll send you a list when we're done with this. <laughs> he is a brilliant writer, and I really think that you would appreciate his uh, his work. And um, hopefully he's going to be coming back on the show again sometime soon. If you get a chance to read some of his stuff, you should come back on for that. By the way, we miss you, Tony. <laughs> <laughs> I made a note. I'm, I was actually going to open up a new tab and go to the library website and request it. But I'm like, no, no, no. We're recording. We don't need any click clack of the typing. So I'll do that later. Masterful editor, do as thou wilt. <laughs> um, but what I will say is, uh, this is one of the very rare occasions where you have a film adaptation from a book that they're so completely different. It's more like the film was just another one of these vignettes or these smaller stories in the book, even though they use some of the same names. It, it just works so well. And having the author obviously write the screenplay is what sold it. But yeah, that that's my first choice. Like the film, absolutely great. Read the book though. That stuff is absolutely insane. There's this whole sequence and this is the only little bit that I'll give. And if you have any kids around, now might be a good time to earmuff them. <laughs> um, as this thing is spreading through Ontario and... Uh, it's uh, infecting more and more people. There is this one scene in the, the book where this guy is hiding in a grain silo and he's looking outside and seeing all the chaos that's happening. And this couple pulls up in a car and they meet this herd of people that are all repeating syllables or half words and just kind of wandering aimlessly. Most of them naked, some of them crawling on all fours like animals. And as soon as they see this couple they shatter through the windows and literally drag them out and carry them to the ground with their mouths. Like they just bite them, pull them out and then proceed to tear them apart. But, um, you know, much like the whole zombie genre, if you are a zombie, the zombies won't mess with you. So if you have the disease, they're not going to mess with it. I don't know. It's wild stuff. That sounds really interesting. I'm looking forward to reading it. It's, uh, very different from what I'm, I'm like my standard fare is. So that sounds really exciting. Well, I, I have a feeling that by the time this episode is done, we're going to have to have like a Patreon revisit after we've read the books that we're suggesting to each other. I think that would be a hoot. I think that's fair. I think All that's right. good. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, you said you had a couple of other up, uh, others up your sleeves. So uh, what's, what's next on, on your list of Halloween uh, hoots? So I'm going to go pretty basic here. But in sixth grade, um, I went to the school book fair and I saw this big honking chunk of a book on one of the adult reads table at the middle school. They had like the, you know, the middle school reads and then they had a section for parents who came in and I went home and I said, hey, dad, there's this book. I really want to get it. And uh, can I? And he said, no, absolutely not. That's not appropriate. <laughs> so I took the money that he gave me to go to the book fair and I bought the book. <laughs> Um, and it was the book it by Stephen King. Oh, and let me tell you, I, I had no business reading that book as a sixth grader. It was no, you did not wildly inappropriate. That's and when I read I, it too, though. So, <laughs> and I loved it. Like the fact of the matter is that Stephen King is a master storyteller because he is a really good storyteller and mm. it launched me to reading so many of his books. And the one that I really want to talk about though is the stand. 
And The Stand is my current favorite of his. It is like, I mean, it was one of those books. It was like 1,300, 1,400 pages, the unabridged version, which, by the way, go with the unabridged version. It is the one that it's like the director's cut. He, he wants you to read that one. You should read that one. I read the entire thing in like a week in seventh or eighth grade, which like blew my mind that you could read that much in that short a period of time. But um, the way that he brings these characters, characters together and you've got the good guys and you've got the bad guys and you've got people that you're not really sure, you know, which side they're actually on and the darkness with which he depicts the the evil characters, I mean, it is truly unique, and um, it, it makes you feel some kind of way. I mean, when uh, the trash man is in his mind, and he is like just like he is nuts. Not to be ableist in my language, but that man, that character is truly out there and you feel unsettled when you're reading it. And mm-hmm. um, it is just, it is, I think, one of the best examples of how good Stephen King can be when Stephen King is good. Um, and I think there's a lot of them that can be said of that, uh, that you can say that of, but that one is my pick. It is... Um, truly spectacular. And I have to say, like I, I said, you should read the unabridged version. I've read both. And the only thing you lose when you read the abridged version is like two or 300 pages of really fantastic descriptions of other characters that have no bearing on the plot. It Like, I mean, maybe I'm not, I'm kind of probably speaking out of turn, but like, there, so the story of the of the stand is there's this plague that kills off a massive chunk of the human population, and the unabridged version contains lots of large sections of people who didn't die from the plague, but died from stupidity or died from human malevolence or died from um, just you know humanity, and. It is so gratifying to be able to have Stephen King be able to have the leeway of taking you down these paths and like enjoying these characters and liking these characters and then seeing them die. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, let's, but let's build up that connection. Let's make you care about these characters. Oh, sorry. They're dead. (laughs) Yep. Yeah. I, so, and for those of you, because we're not, recording the uh the the video here when i said the stand uh flood pumped his arm he was so excited so yes i mean oh yeah absolutely so as i i love that you brought that up because um it i think was the first stephen king book that i tried to read um and i i read it roughly around the same age as as you did luckily i was i decided to go back and read it again in my um mid twenties, I think. And it was such an enriching experience going back, like knowing more about the world, because if you try to read something like that in sixth grade, a lot of it's going to go over your head. You'll, you'll get, you'll get the gist of it. And thankfully it will. Yes. Work. Yes. We're not even going to go into, I know exactly what you're hitting at and we're not even going to be talking about that. But, um, 
the stand I want to say I came across when I was uh, in in late high school. I, probably not a senior, but getting up there. And I remember I remembered remembered watching the television miniseries that they did like back in the nineties. And yep. I always thought like it was a really fascinating story. I'm like, this is actually this is a great story. These are great characters. I want more. And so I went and I tracked down a copy of the book. And like you, I read the uh, the unabridged version. Wow. Yep. Man, there is I remember coming across the abridged version in a bookstore a few years later. I picked it up. I'm like <laughs> that looks really light. Something's off here. <laughs> and I flip and I flipped through it and that's when I, I was like, this makes no sense. So I did some research and I found out how much was cut out. I'm like, thank God I never got the you know, the studio cut of that book. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. The um but but you're right, like the the world that he created yeah. It truly is like one of the greatest fantasy horror epics I've ever read in my life. It is beautiful. It is dark. Um, so much great character development. And you really do like I shed a couple of tears when some of the characters died. Like even as I'm reading the book, I'm like, oh, come on, man. Yep. <laughs> Don't do that to me, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> but he did. He is ruthless. Yep. And I and you're right. Like I. I am a Stephen King fan, but it is kind of one of those things. I'm the first to admit he's not always on, but when that man is on, it is pure fire. And Randall Flagg, the man <laughs> in black, is probably one of the greatest villains ever to grace pages or film ever. Just so good. Yes. I will say... Um, to to continue what you just said about when Stephen King can be hit or miss, I think that, and I really hope that Stephen King doesn't listen to this, although, hey, it'd be good for you if he does. But um, I think that Stephen King can suffer in his endings. Like even the books that aren't the best, the whole story is good until the ending, in my opinion. I think that when he's not, when he misses the mark, it's just the ending. And the ending, in my experience, is never so bad that it makes the book not worth reading. It just isn't a good ending. Yeah. Um, but The Stand is absolutely not that case. It is Abs 100% true. It's a solid ending. It is a solid book from beginning to end. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I again I got to give that one, you know, Flood's stamp of a you know seal of approval. If you haven't read the original book um and specifically the unabridged version, do yourself a favor this Halloween, go out and buy it. Yeah. Um it's probably going to take you a while to get through. You will probably have to backtrack a few times. I know that I know I did because it's such an encompassing story that about a quarter of the way into reading it, I started to make annotations and write notes and, and even stick like little sticky notes. I'm like, <laughs> I know I'm going to have to come back and read this again at some other point. And sure enough, like by the end of the book, I'm flipping back. I'm like, wait, 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 wait. Oh, so that's why that happened. <laughs> I need to reread it again. I, it's just, I need to. Yeah. Hey man. Uh, I think I'm overdue for a read on that as well. If, <laughs> I can see a horror book review kind of brewing. Yes. Here. <laughs> All right. So what is your next book? All right. So my next one is actually not a work of fiction. I have in my hands the book of Abramelin. 
Now, this is... I, I don't know how to really explain it other than for those of my listeners who have been with me throughout the whole time, you know that I'm kind of a novice occultist. I look into all the weird stuff, all of the, the, all of the woo-woo, but the Book of Abermelon in particular is a giant magical ritual that is meant to give you access to commune with your own personal holy guardian angel. And while that sounds really nice, getting there is horrifying. Really? Yes. And uh, I, I truly find this fascinating. And um, I'm in the middle of my second read of it right now. And I still can't comprehend half of the crap in this book, Tommy. I, I can't. It's it's really, really dense. And it's also written in very, very old world language. So okay. um, it's it's a little tedious to get through. But the short version is this this guy, Abraham, from um, uh, Abraham von Worms from Germany, went out on a kind of a pilgrimage to, you know, a find knowledge and, and kind of a spiritual journey. And he ends up meeting this, this guy named Abramelin the mage. And after Abramelin warmed up to him a little bit and they started talking about spirituality and, um, you know, how it connects to the modern world and how it can make you a better person, how to expand on that. Abramelin starts to talk to him about a an operation, as he refers to it, but really it, it's an occult ritual or a magical ritual. And it is intense. This is six to 18 months long. You will have to devote every waking moment to it. And it's it starts off really nice and easy. You, uh, you do things like you ritualistically, you get up at sunrise and you pray in one particular direction and um, you do all sorts of, you know, like you have to have specific types of oils, specific types of candles, specific types of symbols drawn onto the floor, on the window. You have to have a specific type of house in order to allow light to come in from certain angles at certain times of the day. Basically, you have to be a self-made millionaire in order to do this ritual in modern times. Fair enough. But through the course of the first third of it, it's it's all about prayer, meditation, and giving what you have to other people. So you're supposed to spend like a couple of hours out of your day and wander through your local community. And do you have money in your pocket? Give it to someone. Do you have food with you? Somebody needs it more than you. You, you offer as much as you possibly can. And so as I'm reading this, I'm like... Okay, it seems, I mean, I couldn't afford to do that, but that's that's nice. It's a nice gesture. And there are reasons for this that I'm not going to go into. You're going to have to read this one yourself, and I would be really interested to, to hear your responses on it. Um, but the second step is where it gets really twisted. You have to go through a series of rituals where you summon and bind a series of demons. Now, I am not a religious man at all. You know, like we've talked about this before. I, I don't really believe in the, the concept of um, um, cookie cutter religion versions of deities and gods. I don't. But after several years of 
dealing with the paranormal and looking into occult practices. I do believe that there are layers of reality that we don't fully understand. And I think that some of these things allow us an opportunity to peer through or to at least, you know, drag our fingers across the surface of the water of these things. And the more I read this book, the more it freaked me out because it started th – this, this ritual, this operation is old. I mean really old. Uh, if, if you ask Abermelon, it was probably around 4th or 5th century that it was created – and it was just passed down by word of mouth and in through very, very small groups of people because it was considered to be a very, very sacred thing. You don't just it, – it's like a, the the Kabbalah. You have to really put in the time before you're allowed to start understanding the mysteries of the Kabbalah, which you know, this is very similar to it. But the thing is, is apparently if you start this operation and you don't finish it, which – Usually that happens because it can take anywhere from six to 18 months to pull it off. Mm -hmm. uh, most people end up bailing on that middle part where you are supposedly summoning and binding quote unquote demons, which I have theories on that. We'll save that for a different show. <laughs> the vast majority of people who have broken down and given up on that midway point, things do not go well for them. And a prime example of that is our good old favorite occultist, Alistair Crowley. Oh. He never completed the ritual, and uh, it caused a lot of harm, and, and his life descended into madness after that. Before the, before the Abramelin operation, he was actually, like, he wasn't as sinister and as, as over the top as he was, but... He tried to do this, got frustrated, didn't have the patience for it, gave up, and then he became the uh, absolute nutcase that we know of today. <laughs> that is wild. That yeah. is fascinating. Now, I, um, you know, I, I, again, not religious, but I also don't really fully subscribe to the concept of uh, a lot of what people call "quote unquote" magic. Um, I think. I think for the the majority of it, it's a uh, a fun and creative way to rewire your own brain and your own perception of reality. And if you do it right, it can actually be very healthy and very helpful to it. But if you start going down a dark path like Crowley did or somebody like that, it can wreck your life and the lives of everybody around you. And Abramelin makes that point as he's talking to Abraham von Worms is like, you cannot do this unless you are really ready to follow through with it or it will destroy your life. Now, apparently, if you do actually succeed through that second part of the summoning and the binding, that's when you can actually kind of take a breath and then it's a whole lot of cleansing, a whole lot of more meditation. And then eventually you will come face to face with whatever cosmic spirit is supposed to be um, connected to you. And I've talked to people who have actually done this ritual and I've heard some really fascinating stuff. You, you've talked to people as in more than one is in plural people yes. that have completed this six to 18 month process. Yep. Wow. Yeah. I mean, wow. <laughs>
And their response was always the same. The the outcome was one of the most uh, enlightening and uplifting experiences of their lives. But that whole middle part was living in a complete and total nightmare. So I'm, I'm totally new to this. So I don't have any like insights to ask or anything. But the thing that comes to mind is you have to be a particular kind of person to think that you can successfully summon and negotiate with demons if that is the type of entity that you are proposing to engage with Mm. um and that is not something that i feel like i can even comprehend like that is like you're telling me this and from a purely like intellectual perspective it sounds really interesting and fascinating to like read the thing and explore the thing from a like outsider perspective kind of a way. Mm-hmm. But the idea of like going through this process. Yeah. That sounds scary. Yeah. Like, they, I mean, we're here to talk about scary books. That sounds scary. The notion that you, I mean, and I think that that leads actually quite nicely to the, the, the big one that we're, we're here to talk about. Um, yeah. Yeah. But we'll save it. <laughs> yes. But as a way to transition to that, I was talking about this topic of scary books with my, my wife and my oldest, who's 15, uh, before we started recording. And I asked them, you know, what, what books have you read that have been really scary? And they were like, I mean, books don't, books aren't really scary. Like, and the look on your face was really funny, but like, <laughs> they're not scary in the same way that movies are scary. Like I watched the trailer for the movie smile while I was walking my dog tonight and it gave me the feeling that a scary movie gives me when I'm watching none of the books that we've talked about tonight that I've read have given me that particular feeling because when it is visual and it is in your face, it is a particular kind of feeling. But it's a visceral fear as it, opposed to the the intellectual, like the Hitchcockian, let your mind do the damage. Yes. Yeah. And so watching, I mean, like reading The Stand, like you're picturing it in your mind and you are visualizing it and you are slowly over the course of a week or two, you are developing this, you know, it is a building of intensity. It is a building of tension. It is that thrill uh, in the term thriller, that intensity, that stress on your body, which is a different kind of feeling. Um, so I think that both both of my wife and my oldest were talking about it in comparison to the kind of fear that a movie can give you and a book doesn't give you the same kind of fear. However, um, I think that is not true of the one that we're going to be talking about because, uh, well, when we get there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Now, uh, and and before we get there, you you said that you still had uh, one more card to pull tonight, didn't you? I did, but I want to skip it. I'll just, I'll mention it. Um, It is a book called The Manse, M-A-N-S-E by Lisa Cantrell. 
Uh, again, this was a middle school read for me, but it is not a middle school read. It is more than it is more a middle school read than Stephen King is. But the idea is there's this JCs or like you know the the uh, this community organization puts on a haunted house every year, and the house that they put the haunted house in becomes actually haunted. And all of the things that they put in the haunted house to scare the kids and the families are actually haunted this year. And so all manner of stuff happens and the ish hits the fan in the most amazing way. And it was the closest thing to reading a slasher movie I could imagine. Really? It was fantastic. Now I've not reread that since like sixth or seventh grade, but it was so good. I mean, we're talking like I, I'm fairly certain dismemberment happened. I'm fairly certain, <laughs> you know, heads were lost. I mean, it was it was brutal in a delightful way. <laughs> awesome. Which, by the way, folks, we will we will have uh, links and a full list for you whenever whenever we put this out. We'll provide you all with all of the links for this stuff so you can go check it out yourself. That brings us to our big bad of the evening. <laughs> um, in uh, in the year two thousand, a an unknown writer named Mark Z. Danieluski published a book called House of Leaves, and I got to tell you, Tommy, even just saying the title kind of gave me chills right up my spine. Yep. I've read a lot of horror. I've watched a lot of horror. Um, there are very few things, and, and you know, I, I find it fun. I, I I love the thrill. I love the excitement. Um, I love dark things, obviously, but <laughs> <laughs> but this hit me on a completely different level, and it is to this day the only work of fiction that actually scared the hell out of me. Yes. Yeah. Hundred percent. I cannot think about the book house of leaves without first of all smiling because <laughs> it what it is so thoroughly amazing what it is as a book and we'll get more into that what it is as a book but i have a distinct memory of me at the time i was in i believe i was in grad school when i was reading it and i was doing this thing on Friday nights where no, you know, in college, nothing happens until 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock at night anyway. So Friday afternoon, I would get out of class. I would head to my local coffee shop. I would have dinner and I would read for three or four hours. And that book was that for me, but I didn't just read it on Friday nights at the coffee shop. I would also sit in my apartment and I would read that book. And I also, I, I didn't read the back of books. I didn't want to know anything about it. I opened this book because I'd been told it was good. I start reading it and I'm like, this is really weird. I don't know what, like, I don't really get what's happening. Like, but not in a bad way, in a, I'm really curious how this is going to unfold. So uh, I, you said it. <laughs> curious. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yes. I, I, I didn't mean to cut you off, but also quick, quick disclaimer. Um, friends, if you're listening to this and you have not, read house of leaves stop this episode now come back to it later anyway uh but 
I think that's best. Yeah, I was, I was yeah. going to try to keep it spoiler free, but I don't think you can. No. So I'm sitting in my apartment reading this book by myself, and I distinctly remember looking up and looking around and being completely aware of the fact that I was completely unaware of my surroundings. And I shut the book and I set it down and I looked at the book and I looked around and I had goosebumps on my, up my arms and I'm getting goosebumps right now talking about it. I had goosebumps and I got up and I looked at the book like what the hell did this book just do to me? Mm-hmm. To this day, I have never experienced a book like that. I have read so many phenomenal books that have like made me understand like this is the power of literature. I've read books that have made me laugh out loud and cry and jump. I have had so many amazing experiences with books, but I have never had a book make me set the book down, look at it with like fear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, before we go any further, just I, 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 we're not going to spell out the whole book for you here, folks, but the, the short version of this is that it's multiple stories wrapped up into one. And the, the short version is you have this uh, narrative character, Johnny Truant, who um, was taking what it was like a side gig where he uh, he was being paid by this old blind man Zampano to, to read books to him, basically. Shortly after uh, their relationship started and they, they started meeting together on a regular basis and, and Johnny would read uh, Zampano books, uh, poor Zampano ends up passing away. Not too long after that, Johnny returns to his apartment before, you know, people come and clear the place out and he starts looking around and he starts picking up, uh, I, I guess you would call it relics from Zampano's life or, or I, I think he originally went there. Uh, it's been a while since I read it, but he either went there to ransack the place for stuff that he could sell <laughs> Or he went back there to pick up uh, keepsakes to remind him of their relationship or maybe a little bit of both. But in the process, he stumbles across this stack of papers that seems to be a written out description, shot by shot, of a documentary called The The Navidson Record. And the Navidson record was apparently a amateur documentary uh, by a man who just moved in to a new house with his family. And this house, out of the blue, develops a door out of nowhere that opens up to a hallway that extends well past the, uh, well beyond the boundaries of the structure of the house. So right there, you know, you're starting to go off into really, really weird territory. And the short version is without, you know, retelling the whole book, the Navidson record talks about Will Navidson, the man who owns the house, bringing in some of his documentary film crew to start checking out this house and, and unraveling the mystery behind it. And what happens behind this mysterious hallway is terrifying. It, it is a 
never-ending, ever-extending, and constantly moving labyrinth. And that was one of the things that really killed me about it. So no matter how many times they tried to map it out, it would always change. But Uh. it's really important to point out that one of the coolest things about this book is that it is the way that you just just described it. It messes with the narrative structure, which is my like secret kink for books. I love books that mess with the narrative structure. It is not a straightforward narrative. No, but the way that I describe the book is at its core, it's about a house that's bigger on the inside than it is on the outside and house of leaves is a book that is bigger on the inside than it is on the outside. Because mm-hmm. as you were reading this, Flood, you, you said that, you know, it's it's like multiple layers of stories. There's the Johnny Truant narrative, and then there's the Zampano Papers narrative, and then there's the Navinson record na- narrative. But there are footnotes and endnotes. And the self- whale's toe letters. What? The whale's toe letters. <laughs> oh. When I tell you that oh, man. reading through this book was okay, it was really, really scary, but it was what a scary movie is in that it was fun. It was fun in a way that I had never experienced a book before. I've never, I've never, I've never experienced a book like that. And I haven't to this day since. And um, it stands out as this, like, it's, it's like the platonic ideal of a scary book that can never be duplicated or replicated. Like it is its own thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's it is totally its own animal. I've never like I so so let's scale it back from the story for a minute and just talk about the concept of writing. Like a lot of people would call it postmodernism or post postmodernism. I'm sorry, this book does not fit into any classification that you you can try to slap on it. Um I don't know if that was in no, it had to have been intentional. Yeah. Yep. Um but the the layers of storytelling here provides such a truly unique reading experience i honestly cannot offer another comparison there is nothing that you can compare it to i mean other than some of his other works which will on the way out of this we'll we'll briefly touch on that but um this this book got to me on a deeply psychological level like this this thing got into my head and if like the phone call that we had the other night i was talking about so folks when i got this book when i finally got my hands on it and i sat down and i started reading this damn thing i go through the entire book in one sitting i sit there on my couch drinking coffee nonstop for about 13 hours and i plow through it and you would think it would take longer to get through that, but when you flip through the book and you realize how much is stretched out on on some levels, there is – if you were to condense everything down, the book would be about 100 pages shorter uh, than it is. Physically. Which is still massive. It's still massive. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but I get done reading this thing and – it kind of sends me into shock and and I I spend almost like 5 6 hours after I close the book just staring at the wall going what 
the hell did I just let in my house? <laughs> because I, no book has ever truly haunted me, but man, this one did. And it haunted me so well that when I got up the next day, I made another pot of coffee and I read it again. And then I closed the book, I slept for 24 hours, I packed my stuff up, and I left my hometown, and I never went back. It, it, it affected me that much. And, and there was nothing in particular that affected me to the, the point that would compel me to do that. But it was like closing this book was a, a moment of realization that the world is so much wider, weirder, and wonderful than I can possibly wrap my head around. And if I stay here, I'm not going to find out about it. So the, it was it was kind of like a positive moment of inspiration. Mm -hmm. But over the course of those two readings, there are elements in this book that I, no, nothing else has ever been able to get to me like that. And I'm, I'm going to call out one particular passage here. <laughs> I was going to do the same thing. Okay. Uh, well, you first. You're nope, the guest. Nope. Nope. nope you. you okay. Yeah. Go for it. Okay. It was. Uh, it was one of the Johnny Truant segments, and it's the one where he's in the tattoo shop. Is that the one? Yes. Is that the one you're? <laughs> oh God, I love it. That whole sequence was horrifying, and like as I was reading it. <laughs> when, when when you said you had that moment where you shut the book and you put it down and you said, what the hell was that? That was my moment with that book. Reading that sequence, when I got done with that, because as you're reading it, ever since Johnny starts piecing all of these pieces of the, the Navidson record documentation together, it starts to affect him. Weird stuff starts happening around him, but it's always constantly running off of that question is he really experienced something or is he going insane? Because the whale's toe letters, as we mentioned, which is another part of House of Leaves, describes to you that Johnny Truant's mother is very much insane. Uh, I, I can't remember exactly why she was in the institution. It's, it's been a while since I've read it. But there is this whole sequence where he is working in the tattoo parlor that he's been working at for years. And the entire shift, he's just kind of glazed over and like he's an assistant at that point, I think. And he's just kind of glazed over, not really paying attention to stuff. And he's asked to go back into the back room to swap out uh, tattoo needles and replace some ink. And when he walks in to that little storage area, all of a sudden, it's like the walls start to close in on him. And, and not just the walls, but the shadows from every corner just start to, like, basically encompass him. Almost to the point where he starts to develop tunnel vision. And it was enough to make him drop the, ta drop the tray, freak out, and go running out of the store. This book made that happen to me. <laughs> As I was reading it, when I got through that passage, that's when I closed it. And I'm like, I think I'm going to go for a walk out in the open. I'm going to have a few smokes. I'll be back. Like, I, I just, I had to stop. There was something so truly, like, unnaturally terrifying about that passage. So it was that scene for me, but it had a different impact on me. 
Um, and I do, I don't recall the shadows closing in on him. What I do remember is him dropping the tray and falling and the ink getting on him. And folks, I really wish you could see flood right now because it's oh, so fun. But so God, I forgot about that part. Oh, but, oh. <laughs> this is the thing. And I, I'm stumbling over my words because I want so badly to be able to be eloquent enough to convey to the listeners how unbelievably good this writing is that it had this impact because what happens is Johnny Truant falls and the black tattoo ink happens to match the black paint on the floor. And as it spills on his hands, he sees because of his mental state, he sees himself sinking into the ground. He's not actually, but he he like sees his hands sinking into the ground and it scares the living hell out of him. Mm-hmm. And reading that passage, you feel his terror, you feel his confusion, you feel his anxiety, you feel his concern, you feel the utter like ridiculousness of it. Like you're being told the paint has fallen on it or the ink has fallen on his hands. His hands are now covered in ink and they match the floor. So you know what is happening, but you see this from his perspective and it is so incredibly well told that like I laughed out loud in like delight and awe at how wonderful that scene was. But I think it's just absolutely hilarious and wonderful that you and I did not discuss this scene at all. I know. We did not have that plan, but I was about to jump in and say, Hey, I want to mention this one scene when you said, Hey, I want to mention this one scene. And then it's the same scene, but it hit us so completely differently. Yeah. But this book, I mean, I'll be honest. So you read it twice back to back. I read it once, have never picked it up since because I'm a little bit unsure if I can handle it. Like, I know I can, I've read it before, but like I, it, it, it is a massive, I don't mean page wise and I don't mean like the weight of the book, but it is a massive undertaking to bring that upon myself. And I both really, really want to, and I kind of don't. <laughs> it is an incredibly challenging read. I mean, yeah. not only for the, uh, the artistic portrayal of it, which I, I want to talk about that here yes. in a second, but yeah. the emotional content in yeah. that book is heavy. It yeah. really is. And honestly, I think that's where a lot of the, uh, the psychological horror comes from is, uh, Mark Z did a great job of, of really bringing you in to these situations and, and the way that he wrote it, 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 Aside from the documentary side, like the Navison record, the stuff with Johnny Truant, you feel like you're there, the way that it's written. It yeah. it feel like as you're reading it, you can almost hear their voices in your head as if they're sitting right next to you telling about this weird thing that happened to them. Yep. And I think that's one of the brilliant pieces about it. Now, before we go any further, the artistic display of the book. Let's let's talk about that just for a second. Because wow. I mean, that's, 
that's ambitious, man. Like if you're handing me a book where you got to know Braille, know how to read music, <laughs> can figure out that in order to read some passages, you have to hold the book upside down in front of a freaking mirror. That is, that's, that's intense, but it's, you know, I love the gimmick aspect of it, but he didn't do it just for a gimmick. No. Like it, it was to illustrate through page by page the insanity that all these people were suffering through and trying to get through. Yep. And one of the heaviest parts for me was some of uh, Will Navison's like final words during his descent when he's laying there cold and in the darkness and it's one sentence stretched across 10 pages yep. because he doesn't have the strength to say it. Yep. God. Yeah. This book is powerful, people. It really is. It so is. Not <laughs> to mention the fact that, again, I cannot understate a house that's bigger on the inside than on the outside and a book that is bigger on the inside than on the outside. But Mark Z. Danieluski's sister is the recording artist named Poe. Poe. And Poe wrote an accompanying soundtrack to go along with this book. And mm -hmm. that was not... Uh, I don't know if it was available or not available, but I didn't know about it when I read the book. So when I do reread the book before the end of the year, um, I am going to have that on like repeat as I read the book. But like it is, and you, you know, you said that there is an aspect of it that feels like a gimmick in that it is novel. I'd say mm -hmm. it is novel. Um, but it is absolute. And, and like you just said, it's not gimmicky. It is not a gimmick. It is a truly authentic narrative structure that fits in a way that no other narrative structure could fit. Yeah. This the book, artistic, I'm sorry. Yeah, no, you're right. The artistic expression of the internal structure of the story had to be expressed through this intricate, creative, novel, new unexpected way right now and, and see this is i i love that you brought poe into this because what most people are unaware of and and listeners i hope are about to blow your mind especially if you're fans of this um poe who unfortunately because of how terrible the uh the music industry was back in the 90s lost her ability to even use her own name or record under the name of poe until 2011 or no 2000 15 or 16, actually. She she just recently was able to get it back. Her second album, Haunted, is essentially the soundtrack for House of Leaves. Um, both Mark and, and Danielewski, Poe, they worked on their respective projects with a little bit of crossover together, and the whole purpose of it was to... For, for them as siblings to work, work through the grief of losing their father. So Will Navidson, that is their father. He like, they wrote, he wrote him into the book. That is exactly who he is. That whole character is based around, uh, their father. The book and the album was their way to work through it. And I don't think it's, tucked away in the internet anymore, but luckily I have them saved on my hard drive. Whenever you decide to reread this, Tommy, I will send you the collaborative tracks that Poe and Mark did, which was 
Poe using samples or sections of her music from Haunted with a whole cast of characters reading different excerpts from House of Leaves. <laughs> and it's brilliant. It's really, really good. Like, <sighs> unfortunately, it's only like six or eight tracks long and they're super short. But as I'm listening to it, I'm like, why isn't this an audio play? Come on. You had everything you needed right there. But it's a, uh, that's actually one of the reasons that book hits so hard on an emotional and a psychological level is the themes behind it are loss, um, uh, mental illness and grief and, and trying to work through your problems. And it's just, it's cosmic poetry. Like, I don't know how to describe this, this whole thing, but it's, it was just brilliant. No book has ever gotten to me like that. And after you read the book, uh, the album Haunted will probably pierce your heart on multiple levels. Yeah. Yeah. I I can't put any any finer words on it than that. Yeah. It is um it's the thing that you need to do. <laughs> yeah. I think this is one that we're gonna have to revisit. Uh, because you said you were planning on possibly reading it soon. And, and by the way, I must say, I didn't read it just two times. I've read that book five times at this point. <laughs> yeah, af after the two times and I packed up and left Mississippi, um, once every four or five years, because also funny side note, um, I don't think I've ever purchased that many copies of a single book in my entire life. Because every time I get one, I mean, I have mine that sits on the shelf forever, but I always buy a second because at least once a year I come across somebody who's like, House of Leaves, what's that? And if I know them well enough, here, take it, go. <laughs> yeah, so I've only read it the once, but it is the one book that I more frequently than any other book, besides Lamb by Christopher Moore, who we talked about earlier, um, it is the one book that I recommend to people the most. It is like, I mean, I, I would buy a copy for anybody who I'm not making this offer to your listeners or to my listeners. Uh, I, but I would buy a copy for somebody just so that they would be able to read it. Like if I, yeah. 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 It, it truly is a, a front and back. It is a solid work of art. And yes. There's not many works of fiction that you can say that. I mean, fiction is great and there can be some phenomenal ones, but there's not many pieces of fiction that I'll look at and say, that is a whole new kind of art. And exactly. That's, exactly. Yeah. That's the thing. Like, this is like, it's not even comparing this to other books because I, again, I don't want to be too obnoxious here, but like, I don't even consider it a book in comparison to other books. Like we can talk about, you know, favorite books all day long, but House of Leaves is, is something that you experience when you are reading it. It is something that, that is beyond what a phenomenal book would do. It, it transcends any of your expectations 
Absolutely. It, it, it really does. And it's, you know, I'm the first to admit, it's not for everyone. Um, the, the narration of it, the way it's pieced together can be exhausting and confusing um, enough for some people that they just can't get into it. And you know what? I totally understand that. I do. But I will say, if you're one of those people, please let yourself grow for a few years and then go back and try to read it again. <laughs> because I no, this is something that I've found really interesting ever since I started talking about this book with a lot of people. And I've given this book, I, I have given out probably 20 copies of this book, at least at this point. And half of them read it and fall into it just like you and I did. The other half, they get maybe a quarter or a third of the way into it. And they're just like, I can't, I just can't. It's, it's too much to work through. It's too much to follow. And folks, I'm not going to lie. It will take work on your part to get through this story. It is yes. not an easy read. No. It is a challenge, but the payout is huge. Yes. A hundred percent. And like, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be able to just, you know, watch something on Netflix and, you know, scroll your phone while you're watching yeah. it. And you're like picking up on the humor. That, that's, that, that is what I do. Most of the time when I'm watching something on Netflix, like I'm totally good with that. I also am totally good with a leisure read. Like I have read more fiction this year than in the last 10 years combined. Oh yeah. It's been a delight. It's been fun. It's been really nice. This book is like, it is something that you will work to complete. And when you have completed it, you will feel like you've climbed to the top of the mountain and you have stood on the pinnacle and you've raised your hands and you've done this victory stance because it is worth every, it, it's not just work. Like it's not, it, it's not at all just work. It is fun and exciting and it is amazing, but it is, it is. Work. Yeah. No, no, I'd say, no, actually that's, Work might not be the right way to put it. What I will say is it'll be one of the most challenging reads. That's a much better word. Much yeah. better word. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it will challenge you. You will get frustrated at times. But again, but, like I, no no other work of fiction has stuck with me like this has. But But when you find yourself standing in front of a mirror, holding the book upside down, and you, you look at what you're doing. And you are reading the words backwards and upside down. If you, if you're the kind of person that's going to be like, yeah, this is awesome. <laughs> Just go buy yourself a copy right now. And if the idea of standing in front of a mirror, looking at a book upside down makes you think, I don't want any part of that. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, don't 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 push yourself into it. Again, it's like I said, I've I've handed this book out to a lot of people, and um, sometimes people are just not ready for it. Yeah. Now, anybody who hands you a copy of this book, and if you have that experience that you're just not ready for it, or it's not speaking to you yet, don't get rid of it. That's all I'm asking. Like, don't get rid of it. Set it on your bookshelf and set it somewhere that you can see it. And every once in a while. Let it catch your eye and, and, and think about it for a minute because it, it truly is a journey. Uh, it's not 
like anything else that I've ever read in my life. 100% agreed. Okay, so I think that we're ready for this. What other books of Mark Z. Danielewski's have you read? And what did you think? All of them is the short version. Okay. Uh, So there is a short story called The 50-Year Sword that if you can find, I highly suggest you read it. It's challenging in the sense of House of Leaves because the text is color-coded and um, the the text matches up with different characters of what's going on. But if you can get into the rhythm of it, it's a fascinating little supernatural short story. So I'm going to go ahead and just interrupt you for a second to say I really wanted to like that book, but I'm colorblind. And so that book is not one that I am able to like, I can read the words, but I, I couldn't know. Do you, do you have, do you have a copy of it? I checked it out from the library when it came out and uh, I was unable to follow it because I was there. I was unable to see what was happening. Okay. So what I'm going to do for you for the holiday season is I'm going to, I'm going to find a copy of this and then I'm just going to do little letter notations on the side of these things. So you know, who is who, uh, it, if, if you actually get a chance to read it, super short read, like you would burn through it in probably like, you know, a couple hours, Yep. Yep. but it's a hoot. It's, it's really a hoot. Now the, his, his first follow-up to House of Leaves was a book called Only Revolutions. Have you read it? Oh, God, I loved it. I loved it. Seriously? Yes. You liked it? I loved it. I did not like it. I loved it. Okay. We're not talking about that anymore then because we're going to have a follow-up episode strictly on Only Revolutions. I freaking loved that book. <laughs> I really did. It was so good. And it, it because of the way it's written in free-form poetry... I'm sure a lot of you are rolling your eyes right now. I couldn't possibly care less. It's it's so good. The story is just fascinating. Yes. And traveling through history like that is just talk about innovative. Like like uh-huh. House of Leaves was one thing, but having a book where you read nine pages in one direction and literally flip it around and read it in nine pages in the other direction for these two points of view that come together to converge at this cataclysmic event that changes their lives together in the center. And then it keeps going beyond that. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Just, Oh my God. It was, you were, you were maybe the third person I've met in my entire life who has actually read it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I think you are the second person that I've talked to that's read it. Yeah. Yep. Okay, yeah, we're we're definitely revisiting that one. So well, we're going to save that for, you know what? That would be a good Valentine's Day. Hard <laughs> uh, agree. Yes. All right, so we'll we'll revisit only revolutions in uh in February. Which means that I need to reread House of Leaves in the next month or two and then I need to reread Only Revolutions because I read that one um I believe it was my second or third year teaching. So it's been, we're talking 19 years ago. Okay. So here's something that's interesting. When you decide to reread it, you have Spotify? Yeah. You do? Okay. When you decide to reread it, I mean, get the book, have the physical book in your hands. I own it. It's up on my shelf upstairs. Great. 
but look up only Revolutions on Spotify. Mark Z. Danieluski and a friend of his played the parts of Sam and Haley and read it. And they did it in, you can read along with it. And it was, and they used uh, Danny Elfman's uh, Dance Macabre as the soundtrack for it. It's brilliant, man. It's great. My mind is kind of blown right now. Uh, Only Revo. Yeah, that's right, ladies and gentlemen, listening to this. I'm literally typing it into Spotify while we're on this podcast. Oh, there it is. Well, this part will be in the uncut version on the Patreon. I'll I'll trim this up and make it nice and clean. Um, but yeah, man, it's it's absolutely worth listening to, and it's it's a great companion piece. And the fact that it was Mark Z who did it himself lets you know that the flow and the 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 pace and the beat of it is exactly how he wants it in the book. Yep. Makes it really interesting to read along with it, to hear the words coming out of his mouth because they came from his head. <laughs> I love that. That is so cool. That's awesome. Yeah. Now the uh the only other pieces of work that he's done is he started this series called The Familiar yep. over the last few years, but unfortunately, I only got to read the first one and what was originally planned to be a 27 volume series got the plug pulled on it after book 5. Oh. So, yeah, so we're never going to find out exactly where he was going with it. Although he has hinted that he might try to pick it back up through um, self-publishing. And also, if you're unfamiliar with it, and if I can find it, folks, I'll share this in the um, in the show notes. Mark Z. Danieluski was shopping around a House of Leaves adaptation recently. He had a script written for three episodes. Now, what gets really interesting is that he folds it into the real world. He wrote himself into it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. You said that, and I'm like, but how are you going to get the multiple layers and the and the uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, I got to admit, I, I read the first three scripts. I hope somebody picks this up because not only will it give us an, an – a, a film version or like a, a, a series version of house of leaves, but it expands on it and not just for the sake of it. Like he really tried to turn this into something way further beyond an adaptation of his own book. He wanted to do something completely different with it. And it would have touched on all of the main plot points and everything that happened in the book, but there was so much more to it. Like, part of the opening scene is a crowd of angry protesters throwing rocks into Mark Z. Danieluski's uh, windows for writing this book and then promoting it as real. And then everybody finding out that it's fake. But then years later, they find out, oh, God, it really was real. <laughs> it, 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 get, it gets way out there. It's nuts. Tommy, thank you, thank you so much for joining me on, on this. Like, I definitely needed a break from the heavy investigation stuff. I love chatting with you, and I, I couldn't have asked for a better person to dig in the house of uh, leaves with. Um, we're definitely gonna have to revisit that again after uh, another reread. I think I don't know, we'll do this every year or two. I don't know, uh, 
But only revolutions. Yeah, like, I'm stating this now, folks. We'll be swinging back around close to uh, Valentine's Day for one heck of a love story for you. Uh, (laughs) But An epic one. Before we wrap this up, I did have one honorable mention that I wanted to bring up to you that um, I want to bring you back on for at one point or another. The Mothman Prophecies. Yes. Yeah. Um, So... Thank you for having me on. This has been a lot of fun for me too. Good. Uh, I have thoroughly enjoyed talking about all these books and the little, you know, rabbit tra- the side trails that we've gone on. It's been a lot of fun. Um, I, I am- still can't believe it was the same piece that got to us both. That was great. But at the man. same time, I absolutely can because yeah. yeah. Um, and I am really looking forward to rereading both of those books because they're just amazing. And this is going to give me an actual motivation to do that. And I absolutely am looking forward to talking about the Mothman prophecies, the book, uh, with you. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, maybe I can, uh, I'll, I'll see, I'll reach out to uh, rich Haddam and see if we can get him in on that conversation too. He's the guy who wrote the screenplay for uh, Mothman prophecies. Well, that would be pretty neat. <laughs> yeah. Which it's always fun to hear him talk about it. Cause he's like, have you read the book? There's no way you can adapt that. Like, you have to find. <laughs> I mean, I guess you probably could now with, uh, with like, the the way that um, series are popping up on streaming uh, networks. I'm, I'm pretty sure somebody could do an accurate portrayal of it, but it needs to be Rich Adam. Rich, if you're listening to this, just saying. You know. <laughs> um, but, yeah, uh, tell me one more time before we wrap up here. Can you uh, can you tell my listeners where we can find you and how we can follow you? Um, yeah. So uh, I am on uh, TikTok and Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Uh, a little bit less on Facebook these days, but I'm still there. And uh, the Curiosity Hour podcast is my podcast with my high school classmate, Dan Sterenchuk. He and I have been going since 2017. We have released something in the neighborhood of 220 some episodes. I forget exactly how many. Um, and both my personal pages and the podcast page uh, is on all the socials. Uh, we are available anywhere you get your podcasts. You can speak to your smart device and say uh, whatever you call your your smart device. Hey, play the Curiosity Hour, and they will do that. Uh, I can vouch for that. It works. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you, I felt like I made it when I was able to do that one day. Um, so, yeah, this has been a lot of fun, John. Thank you very much for having me. Oh, no, absolutely. I will hope to have you back uh, on a little bit more of a regular basis now that we're kind of falling into uh, a rhythm of like three to four major investigations a year and then some breaks to explore other things like film, literature, and personal stories of the strange from other people. Um, so I, I think we're starting to lock into it. But again, folks, I, I cannot stress this enough. If I'm not, you know, I have to work. I work a lot during the day. So let's just say that. So, and I work alone. So podcasts keep me company. If I'm not listening to something that's regarding ghosts, aliens, or uh, occultism or something like that, I am listening to this man. I am listening to Tommy and Dan. Uh, it's some of the best conversations that I that are out there right now. You get some amazing guests and... Honestly, you can totally roulette it. You just punch one in, you're going to enjoy it. So please uh, go show them some support. Definitely follow them. 
I know that you guys are one of my favorites as of late and probably will be for the end of days. But Tommy, thank you again so much for joining us. Next time we'll have to drag Dan on here with us. And um, yeah, man, it's been a hoot. This has been a lot of fun, man. Thank you so much for your kind words. And I really appreciate you uh, sharing our, our podcast with your listeners. I appreciate it, man. Absolutely, man. We're all independent uh, workers here, so we gotta we got to watch out for each other, right? That's right. Absolutely. <laughs> all right. Good night, Tommy. Good night, man. I'd like to thank Tommy for joining me this evening to talk about the books that truly get underneath our skin. I think this was the first of several crossovers regarding literature that will occur over time. Be sure to check out the Curiosity Hour podcast that Tommy does with his friend Dan. I provided a link in the show notes for you, as well as links to all the books we discussed this evening. Don't forget that we will be dark next week, but we'll be back on the 29th with the first episode in our series on the battleship USS North Carolina. I'm really looking forward to sharing our investigation of that ship with you. It was a very, very different experience in comparison to some of our other recent investigations. It was extremely active, but lighthearted, almost. I don't know. It was a truly a unique experience that I'm kind of looking forward to going back and trying it out again. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, Twitch, everywhere as XVPlanus. You can follow my own personal misadventures and music projects at Folds and Floods on those same platforms. Links for both are in the show notes. If you like what we do here, head on over to iTunes or Spotify to rate and review us and tell your friends about us. Tell your families about us. Hell, yell at random people in the bar about us. You can also support us by going to www.patreon.com slash xvplanus and subscribing to gain access to our exclusive content. xvplanus is part of the Green Mushroom Podcast Network. Be sure to check out all the great shows on the Green Mushroom Podcast Network like Primordia, Unearthing Paranormalcy, Luxacult, Grognostics, Ad Hoc History, and many, many more. You can check them out by going to www.tgmpodcastnetwork.com. This show is produced in Durham, North Carolina, and is written, edited, and scored by yours truly. Music from the show can be found on my Bandcamp page for Folds and Floods or anywhere you stream your music. No part of this show or its music may be reproduced without consent. Copyright Folds and Floods Productions. Once again, I am your host, Flood, and this has been XV Planus. Thank you for being a part of the journey so far. I'll see you in the between. In Abambratio, Inflectus Subvelo. Subvelo